Today on episode number 429 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Who's Counting? with John Allen Palos. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahovia, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Best-selling author, mathematician, public speaker, and formerly a monthly columnist for abcnews.com, and occasionally for The Guardian and Scientific American, John Allen Palos grew up in Chicago and Milwaukee and received his Ph.D. in mathematics from the University of Wisconsin. Now professor of mathematics at Temple University in Philadelphia, he's married and the father of two and grandfather of three, actually at this exact date, three and a bit, in addition to being author of a number of scholarly papers on mathematical logic, specifically model theory, probability, and the philosophy of science, Dr. Palos has written Mathematics and Humor, I Think, Therefore I Laugh, Innumeracy, Mathematical Illiteracy and Its Consequences, Beyond Numeracy, Ruminations of a Numbers Man, A Mathematician Reads the Newspaper, Once Upon a Number, A Mathematician Plays the Stock Market, Irreligion, and A Numerate Life. John Allen Palos, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a real honor to talk with you, and I know you even have written an entire book about humor and math, so I thought we might start with a little bit of humor. Would you give us the audio version of a joke about if math went away? (laughs) There's a genie out of the bottle, and he talks to some little uh, genie-like figure, as I give you three wishes, what would they be? And the, the figure says, I wish math would disappear. And then the genie says, uh, okay, you're all done. No more wishes. <laughs> I both loved that joke because, of course, so many of us can be intimidated by math. But I also particularly found it amusing that when I went into the comments on that particular tweet, the number of people who were like, but wait, it's zero. That's still math. And I thought, oh, gosh, <laughs> I started sort of shaking my head. I think you missed the point. There was another little bit of humor I thought you could start us with. I've been enjoying seeing a lot of puns on Twitter. Would you give us a pun related to coffins? Okay. Uh, the, the lead up says, uh, I wonder if glass coffins will ever catch on. And the response is, remains to be seen. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for humoring me. Well, we we are not here to talk about that book today, although we certainly already have, but we're here to talk about your newest book. Would you tell us a little bit about the origins of it and why you decided to write this particular one? Uh, yes, the, the title is Who's Counting? The subtitle is Uniting Narratives and Numbers with Stories from Popular Culture, Politics, and whatever. And I, since right, math is a kind of uh, imperialist discipline, almost any other discipline can be invaded by mathematical ideas and techniques. So the, the book covers all 
kinds of topics. And parts of it come from my abcnews.com columns that I wrote. I, I picked some of the most resonant and relevant ones, as well as a, a lot of more topical columns on recent events, uh, abortion, from COVID, and so on. So it's a, a collection of columns, and uh, the older ones are uh, put into perspective. And often, unfortunately, things <laughs> don't change that much. Uh, a lot of the things that I complained about, in a way, and the numeracy, an earlier book of mine that, that are still problematic and still uh, still the case. So many of our um, our problems that have a mathematical component are not due to, but are relevant to policy issues and so on. So in that sense, uh, I mean, almost every issue and many minor ones in this country are are made more difficult by believing that, or at least uh, acting as if the numbers, probabilities, and relative magnitudes relative to them don't really matter. And so, as I say, um, uh, societal innumeracy remains a vastly underrated driver of bad policy, bad politics, and so on. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And and in addition to the lack of the literacy there, but then sometimes the lack of the ability to turn it into that narrative and make it compelling. So that that tension is certainly certainly important. Well, let's start with something very important for many college students in some places and cultures, and that is pizza, often thought of as a typical college food for, for again, some students. Why is a medium size such a bad move for college students or really anyone? Well, it, it shows that people aren't sensitive to uh, scaling. I mean, if you have a pizza, which is one pizza, which is uh, five inches in diameter, another one which is 10 inches in diameter. The one that's 10 inches in diameter is actually four times the area of the one that's five inches in diameter because the area of pizza scales with the square of the diameter, not with you know the, the length of the diameter. So area scales up with a, a, the square of whatever some linear measure is. So again, a 10-inch pizza is four times as large as a as a five-inch pizza. And with regard to drinks, it's, it's even worse. That, that scales up with the cube of the factor. If you have one drink, the same uh, shaped cup that's uh, five inches tall and another one that's 10 inches tall, let's say it's a, a Coke or whatever, then uh, the big one is a 1,000 cubic. Uh, it's a, well, it's not a cube, but uh, 1,000 to uh, 125. It's almost 10 times as, as much volume. So... You know, if one is conscious of scaling factors, one is aware that you should probably take the larger, even if you don't finish it, you get much more pizza and you can give it to the person sitting next to you if you, if you like. But and scaling plays a role in all kinds of things, not just in pizza, but model cars and even a politician. Some, some policy works really fine in a small town. But it doesn't scale up to a, a big town or much less to a city because you, you multiply by some power of whatever uh, natural measure is in a small town. And, you know, that's why so many brilliant ideas which seem to work in small towns or small states don't in large towns or big cities or na nationally. In addition to writing books, you also have been teaching for a while. And before we continue to explore and we're going to go into probability next. But before we do that, I'd love to have you share a little story about 
a time that you realized that students were behaving as if they understood what you were saying and, and you knew, you realized you had to dig a little bit deeper? Yeah, well, I, I tell a story. I was teaching for uh, a summer a course in uh, Bangkok, Thailand. A friend of mine was there and was at the university there. And I was teaching a class of nursing students, and you know they were very you know, pleasant and whatever. And I was doing some mathematics. I think it was probability or whatever. And they would always say ka ka, which is yes, I agree, and nodding their heads in Thai. Ka ka ka. And then I, I realized I had misspoken and I wrote something on the board that was wrong and I still got the caca. So I, I, made, I made some other mistakes and the same thing happened. And then I realized there was nothing to do with the agreement. They were just trying to, the students were, you know, delightful, but nevertheless, were just trying to be agreeable. And no matter, so I started saying complete nonsense. <laughs> and I mean, it's probably a marginally cruel pedagogical practice. I don't know. But again, they said, ka, ka, ka. Finally, I said, no, that, this is nonsense. I mean, I, I, I appreciate you're trying to be kind to me, but, you know, you should think. It's, you, should, you should shake your head no, not say yes. Yeah, that to me, your your sense of pedagogy came out in the book as well, because you don't sort of leave it as a only one way conversation because you ask a series of puzzles or riddles in the book and then get us engaged to try to answer them before you give us the answers, you know, to, to how we might think about some of the problems that you pose in there. Because I do think that some of that can be a cultural thing for sure, but I think there is that universal desire to not appear foolish as if you don't know. And there is still a lot of respect for teachers that comes in, and some of that can be helpful, but some of it can be really not helpful in terms of us actually seeing what is actually occurring in someone's learning process versus, I mean, as if we could ever truly see it, but I mean, to get better glimpses into how that learning may be occurring versus, you know, the head nods, which aren't going to happen in a lot of different contexts, for sure. No, but back to math and humor, I mean, I mean, people think it's kind of uh, odd juxtaposition or a strange combination of topics, but both of them deal with logic, patterns, rules, structure, with a different emphasis, of course. Humor, the logic's often inverted, patterns are distorted, rules are misunderstood, but the transformations are, are not random, and math and humor are also economical and explicit. Uh, a short proof is better than a long proof, and a long shaggy dog story uh, after a while is not funny. The shorter punchlines uh, are. So um, what is the case is that some, there's a continuum between math and humor, and somewhere in the middle are puzzles. And maybe the, the math is a little bit more significant than uh, punchlines of jokes, but there's something similar to it. And uh, I think puzzles and uh, Jokes are a good way to impart mathematical ideas. In fact, Ludwig Wittgenstein, a philosopher, uh, once uh, commented that he could write a whole book in philosophy that it consisted entirely of jokes. I mean, jokes broadly conceived, and not just uh, one-liners, but little anecdotes and uh, humorous uh, uh, little stories. And if you got the, the relevant joke, you'd get the relevant philosophical point. So... Uh, for these and other reasons, personal reasons, I included a lot of puzzles in the book, Who's Counting? Because, as I say, I, I think uh, they bring out ideas without kind of scaring people with the equations and formulas. And often the idea can, can be understood by somebody who's 
completely innocent of the, the relevant formal mathematics. And so there are a lot of puzzles, but not just mathematical ones, ones that have a, a social aspect as well, or a lot of thought experiments. So just, I include it as well. So I, I try to get points across via little stories and anecdotes and vignettes rather in, than you know, more formal mathematics. So speaking of philosophers, would you talk about the time you were able to go on the David Letterman show? That <laughs> uh, so was a long time ago when he was on NBC, and I was impressed with him. He had uh, this riveting gaze and was uh, quite responsive. And the first thing he says, is going to take you out of that suit if you bring up numbers again or whatever. But I think we had a discussion of luck, and I, because why had enumeracy an early book of mine, so bestseller? How did it get to be on the bestseller list? And, and I said, well, a big element of it, as in life in general, for people in general, it was luck. It was a cancellation of this, of a book on today's show. The author got sick, and I was called in. And then some all kinds of other things developed from that. And there was no internet in those days, but uh, there was still a kind of hall of media mirrors. And one thing led to another. And it, the term wasn't in use in the, this was the late 80s, early 90s, wasn't in use in those days. But because of this hall of mirrors, the, the book went viral, it became a bestseller for, uh, for five months on New York Times bestseller list. You make me wonder what it would look like if we were to actually give more attributions to the power of luck in any of our lives to what happens to us, because it's something that we don't, I certainly don't hear that happening very often in public discourse. Yeah, no, that's true. People don't want to admit that there's something more than luck. You need skill, you need whatever, but uh, you uh, also need luck often. And many people don't want to acknowledge that. Yeah. So speaking of luck, which would be one type of way of looking at probability, we're really bad at probability, correct? <laughs> As a society. Uh, in general, but people don't realize that formal probability and statistics grew out of everyday language. I mean, think of the terms for central tendency, mean, median, mode, and so on. Uh, those are technical notions, but they, they grew out of everyday words like usual, customary, typical, same standard, stereotypical, and so on. Same thing for the precursors of the formal notions of statistical variation, standard variation, variance, and so on. Those terms scare people, but they just grew out of in our refinements of words like unusual, peculiar, uh, strange, extreme, deviant, far out. And the probability itself is presaged in words like chance, fate, likelihood, odds. And we change our minds if we get new information. Everybody does that, but Bayes' theorem and probability tells you how to do that more precisely. So the bottom line is that probability statistics are not really alien ideas, even though people generally are quite bad at them. They're in dire need of distillation, clarification. But too many of us are like the Moliere character who's surprised that he had been speaking prose his whole life. I mean, we've <laughs> We do speak probability, all of us, our whole lives. I mean, most of us speak it badly, but we do speak it. Yeah, and you talk a lot in the book about the ways in which our inability to sometimes think in probabilistic terms with regard to a story, an example you use of COVID hospitalizations. 
Right. Uh, people sometimes point to states that have a very high uh, vaccination rate. This was earlier in the epidemic. Let's say a, a state is such that 90% of its residents have been vaccinated. But you look at the hospitals and half of the people in the hospitals have been vaccinated and half have not. So people say, oh, see, it doesn't make any difference. Half are vaccinated, half are not. But the half that are not come from 10% of the population that are unvaccinated. And so the 10% contribute fully half of the cases. And the 90% also contribute half the cases, but that are obviously at a much lower rate because 90% is the Let's say there are some 200 people in a hospital, 100 of them came from among the 10% who are unvaccinated. And the other 100 came from you know, the people who were vaccinated. So it's, well, like a lot of things, uh, people don't critically interpret the, the numbers they're giving. I mean, even like five-year, to change uh, the example, the five-year survival rate is often taken as evidence of the total cure. But that's not always a, a good metric five-year survival rate. Imagine there are two states and one of them mandates vaccines and the other one doesn't have vaccines at all. But there's a disease which uh, generally arises, let's say, in in people's one's 50s and is almost always fatal by the time one's 65. If you mandate screening tests for people in their at 50, they're of course going to have a 100% five-year survival rate. And the other state, which doesn't mandate anything, has no screening test. The symptoms show up in the early 60s, and so they have a a zero. So once the symptoms turn up, those people die when they're 65. So they have a 0% survival rate. But the state that has a test mandate, screening test mandate, has a 100% screening rate, but the same number of people die in both states. So, I mean, this is a special case. The numbers are just made up to show that if if, a condition or disease doesn't admit of a good treatment, screening tests aren't going to do anything. But in general, people don't really realize that, I mean, don't critically analyze various metrics that are used. Sometimes it's because of innocence of probability. Sometimes it's because, you know, willful desire not to face up to the thing, to whatever the situation is. John, before we get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to ask you one question I'm not sure is fair (laughs) in the sense of it seems too broad and too small altogether, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. We're really bad at this stuff sometimes, and and so what can we do to get better? I I am tempted to give the flip answer. Oh, you're one of my books. Yeah, I I set it up for you. It's kind of one of those softball things. Here you go, John. Yeah. Well, I mean, just paying attention to the, the... I mean, there, there are reasons that people aren't good at probability. Uh, one is people don't naturally think in those terms. But the more you are exposed to them, the more you, you will think naturally in this. But people often, you know, their, their, their vocabulary regarding probability is quite limited. It's either a sure thing or 50-50 or impossible. And that's hardly uh discerning uh, set of terms. The second reason is people often subscribe to the belief that everything happens for a reason, every great great blade of grass, and that certainly discourages trying to understand things probabilistically. And many, many people, for religious or other reasons, think that everything has a reason. And um, another obstacle is that much of the reasoning in many of the 
conclusions with probability are, are tricky and counterintuitive. I mean, standard issue is a birthday problem. If you have 367 people in a room, you, you'll be certain at least two have the same birthday because there are only 365, 366 days in a year. So probably at least two will have the same birthday is 100%. But if you have just 23 people in a room, the probability that two people will have the same birthday among those 23 is 50%. And that seems counterintuitive. So, I mean, paying attention to numbers and uh, putting them in context. I mean, numbers, probability, logic are still uh, among our most reliable guides to reality. And we, and uh, if we don't critically examine them, I mean, then we're reduced to relying on uh, on power and wealth is determining what is true. And that, unfortunately, <laughs> is becoming ever more uh, obvious. That's a bad thing for society. Well, John, that's the perfect transition to the recommendation segment, because I actually would like to recommend your book, Who's Counting? And I fit in the type of person who probably wouldn't have maybe picked up this book if it weren't for the fact that I was excited about the opportunity to interview you. So it was definitely a, I will do this thing if I get this opportunity, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> but I didn't sign myself up for it. Let's just say that. And I think it's too often we're just able to leave ourselves where we are and think, you know, I, I can't do this. It's too hard. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so simple of me when I say it that way, but I think it really can be a confidence builder. I, I remembered some of the things I had learned in statistics class and thought, you know, you you remember more of this than you would have thought coming into this. But yet a lot of it really did stretch me, but you never leave us behind. You know, I might I might not have understood <laughs> every single <laughs> puzzle or things, how they worked out, but, I, but you kept me going, you kept my attention, and you cover so much ground in the book. So I, I do really think that you are being both authentic and, and true in saying a book like this, your book can really help people to build confidence and to build competence. Because I, I think confidence without competence is really not, yeah, what, right. we, not no, what we need more of. So I really would like to recommend that people pick it up or, or some of your earlier books as well. Or, or I understand from hearing from other of your people who have been big fans of yours for many years now, also really great reads. So I've really enjoyed, again, getting to read the book, getting to talk to you today. And I want to recommend that people pick up Who's Counting and give it a read and let me know what you think and if you also get to build your confidence and competence as well. Well, thank you, thank you very much for those kind words. Oh, of course, yeah. I really appreciate them. And what would you like to recommend today? I'd like to recommend a book. It's Thinking, comma, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And it's a kind of a summary of his work and Amos Tversky's work in this, uh, examining various cognitive foibles to which we're all subject. I mean, the availability area, the anchoring mistake, uh, confirmation bias. Actually, even there's a, another bias that people aren't aware of. It's called the conjunction fallacy. And uh, yeah, let me, if we have time, I'll give sure. one brief, brief example. Okay, there's a, this senator, Senator Jones, let's say. And he's a very upright senator. He's in the middle of the road. He's moderate in everything. He lives modestly. He's been married for 40 years. He lives happily with his wife and, and sick daughter. And okay, so that's the background. Given that background, which of the following two options is more likely? One, he took a bribe from a lobbyist. And two, he took a bribe from a lobbyist 
and used it to pay for his daughter's, uh, his sickly daughter's operation. And given the background, many people would say, well, the second one is more probable, but it's not because it's always less, the more conditions you have, the less likely they all are. So the probability of one condition, namely taking money from a lobbyist, probability of one condition condition being true is is greater than the probability of two of them. In fact, there's a trade-off between probability and plausibility. If you want your story to be more plausible, add more details. And given the internet, there's all kinds of factoids and non-factoids you can put together into a concoct a, a plausible story. But the more you add, the less probable it is. So there's this you know, tension between the two. And again, it's called a conjunction fallacy. Conjunctions are less likely than simple sentences and long conjunctions even less likely. So anyway, so the, the, the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, again, ex- examines all kinds of cognitive foibles, many of them with a kind of mathematical flavor that has infect all our thinkings. None of us are immune from some of these. I've read it, and I forgot, though, that that's called a conjunction fallacy. But it's there seems to be such this tension between, like you said, the more details that get concocted, the more some people get swept away in it. And then there's sort of the razor thing where you go, like, <laughs> like really, well, I- all of these things came together for, like— all of these different actors. I mean, I, I've been doing a little bit of work with with the students I, I get to teach, and I, I certainly don't want to seem to be poking fun because, thank goodness, they're in college and they, you know, they're pursuing their education. But sometimes we're we're really not getting our news from the greatest of sources out there. Uh-huh. And and I, I came across a couple recently that really kind of blew my mind some of the things that they believe in just and you think about like how many people would have had to all be orchestrating together in order to have this happen but but again I have happy news to report that I even think the one small little bit that we did on information literacy made a small difference and I recently read, did some reading where you, you hear things like small is all, though. I mean, it's those little tiny small steps that we make that you, d- you don't really know the kinds right. of changes they might have. I mean, we shouldn't just give up, I guess, is the point I'm making. But yeah, the, the whole thing between the trade-off between probability and plausibility is really, really... Uh, actually, you, we started with pizza. I mean, maybe we can end on Pizzagate. The reason a lot of people believe that those ridiculous stories about the pizza parlor and the Democrats are torturing kids there or trafficking kids because there are lots of details which were absurd, but the more they added, oh, yeah, there's this and there's that. There, there, there's a quote I like from Mark Twain, basically says, it's much easier to con people than it is to convince them they've been conned. Mm, I like that. I like that. I love that you wrapped us up on pizza again. That was very well timed. That couldn't have been better, John. Thank you so much for being a guest today. And thanks for the wonderful book. I really appreciate your work and your time today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks once again to John Allen Paulus for joining me on today's episode. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak, and was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the wonderful Sierra Smith. Thanks to each of you for listening. These podcast episodes are just one teaching and higher ed resource. If you'd like to receive the weekly email update, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. 
you'll receive the show notes of the most recent episode, the recommendations, as well as some things that don't show up on the podcast, like other recommendations, quotable words. And again, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.